Section 11 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 1, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. May 25th. This morning I could discern the Syrian coast, which becomes the more glorious the nearer we approach. Beirut, the goal of our voyage, was jealously hidden from our eyes to the very last moment. We still had to round a promontory, and then this Eden of the earth lay before us in all its glory. How gladly would I have retarded the course of our vessel, as we passed from the last rocky point into the harbour, to have enjoyed this sight a little longer. One pair of eyes does not suffice to take in this view, the objects are too numerous, and the spectator is at a loss whither he should first direct his gaze. Upon the town, with its many ancient towers attached to the houses, giving them the air of knights' castles, upon the numerous country houses in the shade of luxurious mulberry plantations, upon the beautiful valley between Beirut and Mount Lebanon, or on the distant mountain range itself, the towering masses of this magnificent chain, the peculiar color of its rocks, and its snow-clad summits riveted my attention longer than anything else. Scarcely had the anchor descended from the bows before our ship was besieged by a number of small boats, with more noise and bustle than even at Constantinople. The half-naked and excitable Arabs, or fellahs, are so ready with offers of service that it is difficult to keep them off. It almost becomes necessary to threaten these poor people with a stick, as they obstinately refuse to take a gentler hint. As the water is here very shallow, so that even the little boats cannot come quite close to the shore, some others of these brown forms immediately approached, seized us by the arms, took us upon their backs amidst continual shouting and quarrelling, and carried us triumphantly to land. Before the stranger puts himself into the hands of men of this kind, such as captains of small craft, donkey-drivers, porters, etc., he will find it a very wise precaution to settle the price he is to pay for their services. I generally spoke to the captain, or to some old stager among the passengers on this subject. Even when I gave these people double their usual price, they were not contented, but demanded an additional backsheesh, gratuity. It is therefore advisable to make the first offer very small, and to retain something for the backsheesh. At length I safely reached the house of Herr Batista, the only inn in the place, and was rejoicing in the prospect of rest and refreshment, when the dismal cry of no room was raised. I was thus placed in a deplorable position. There was no second inn, no convent, no place of any kind, where I, poor desolate creature that I was, could find shelter. This circumstance worked so much on the host's feelings that he introduced me to his wife, and promised to procure me a private lodging. I now had certainly a roof above my head, but yet I could get no rest, nor even command a corner where I might change my dress. I sat with my hostess from eleven in the morning until five in the afternoon, and a miserable long time it appeared. I could not read, write, or even talk, for neither my hostess nor her children knew any language but Arabic. I had, however, time to notice what was going on around me, and observed that these children were much more lively than those in Constantinople, 
for here they were continually chattering and running about. According to the custom of the country, the wife does nothing but play with the children or gossip with the neighbors, while her husband attends to kitchen and cellar, makes all the requisite purchases, and besides attending to the guest, even lays the tablecloth for his wife and children. He told me that, in a week at furthest, his wife would go with the children to a convent on the Lebanon, to remain there during the hot season of the year. What a difference between an Oriental and a European woman! I still found the heat at sea far from unendurable. A soft wind continually wafted its cooling influence towards us, and an awning had been spread out to shelter us from the rays of the sun. But what a contrast when we came to land! As I sat in the room here, the perspiration dropped continually from my brow, and now I began to understand what is meant by being in the tropics. I could scarcely await the hour when I should be shown to a room to change my clothes, but today I was not to have an opportunity of doing so, for at five o'clock a messenger came from Mr. Bartlett with the welcoming intelligence that we could continue our journey, as nothing was to be feared from the Druzes and Maronites, and the plague only reigned in isolated places, through which it was not necessary that we should pass. He had already engaged a servant who would act as cook and dragoman, interpreter. Provisions and cooking utensils had been bought, and places were engaged on an Arab craft. Nothing, therefore, remained for me to do but to be on the seashore by six o'clock, where his servant would be waiting for me. I was much rejoiced on hearing this good news. I forgot that I required rest and a change of clothes, packed up my bundle, and hurried to the beach. Of the town I only saw a few streets, where there was a great bustle. I also noticed many swarthy Arabs and Bedouins, who wore nothing but a shirt. I did not feel particularly anxious to see Beirut and its vicinity, as I intended to return soon and visit any part I could not examine now. Before sunset we had already embarked on board the craft that was to carry us to the long-wished-for, the sacred coast of Joppa. Everything was in readiness, and we lacked only the one thing indispensable, a breeze. No steamers sail between Joppa and Beirut. Travelers must be content with sailing vessels, deficient alike as regards cleanliness and convenience. They are not provided with a cabin, or even with an awning, so that the passengers remain day and night under the open sky. Our vessel carried a cargo of pottery, besides rice and corn in sacks. Midnight approached, and still we were in harbor, with not a breath of wind to fill our sails. Wrapping my cloak tightly round me, I lay down on the sacks, in the absence of a mattress, but I was not yet sufficiently tired out to be able to find rest on such an unusual couch. So I rose again in rather a bad humor, and looked with an evil eye on the Arabs lying on the sacks around me, who were not slumbering softly, but snoring lustily. By way of forcing myself, if possible, into a poetical train of thought, I endeavored to concentrate my attention on the contemplation of the beautiful landscape by moonlight, but even this would not keep me from yawning. My companion seemed much in the same mood, for he had also risen from his soft couch, and was staring gloomily straight before him. At length, towards three o'clock on the morning of May 26th, a slight breath of wind arose, we hoisted two or three sails, and glided slowly and noiselessly towards the sea. Mr. B. had bargained with the captain to keep as close to the shore as possible, in order that we might be able to see the towns as we passed. 
excepting in Caesarea, it was forbidden to cast anchor anywhere, for the plague was raging at Sur, Tyre, and in several other places. Bargains of this kind must be taken down in writing at the consulates, and only one half of the sum agreed should be paid in advance. The other half must be kept in check, to operate as a check on the crew. After every precaution has been taken, one can seldom escape without some bickering and quarreling. On these occasions it is always advisable at once to take high ground, and not to give way in the most trifling particular, for this is the only method of gaining peace and quietness. Towards seven o'clock in the morning we sailed by the town and fortress of Saida. The town looks respectable enough, and contains some spacious houses. The fortress is separated from the town by a small bay, across which a wooden bridge has been built. The fortress seems in a very dilapidated condition. Many breaches are still in the same state in which they were left after the taking of the town by the English in 1840, and part of the wall has fallen into the sea. In the background we could descry some ruins on a rock, apparently the remains of an ancient castle. The next place we saw was Serepta, where Elijah the prophet was fed by the poor widow during the famine. The Lebanon range becomes lower and lower, while its namesake, the anti-Lebanon, begins to rise. It is quite as lofty as the first named range, which it closely resembles in form. Both are traversed by fields of snow, and between them stands a third colossus, Mount Hermon. Next came the town of Tyre, or Sur, now barren and deserted, for that mighty scourge of humanity, the plague, was raging there to a fearful extent. A few scattered fragments of fortifications and numerous fallen pillars lie strewn on the shore. And now at length I was about to see places which many have longed to behold, but which few have reached. With a beating heart I gazed unceasingly towards St. Jean d'Arc, which, at length, I saw rising from the waves, with Mount Carmel in the background. Here, then, was the holy ground on which the Redeemer walked for us fallen creatures. Both St. John d'Acre and Mount Carmel can be distinguished a long distance off. For a second time did a mild and calm night sink gently on the earth without bringing me repose. How unlucky it is that we find it so much harder to miss comforts we have been used to enjoy than to acquire the habit of using comforts to which we have been unaccustomed. Were this not the case, how much easier would travelling be? As it is, it costs us many an effort, ere we can look hardships boldly in the face. But patience, thought I to myself, I shall have more to endure yet, and if I return safely, I shall be as thoroughly case-hardened as any native. Our meals and our beverage were very simple. In the morning we had pilau, and in the evening we had pilau. Our drink was lukewarm water, qualified with a little rum. From Beirut to the neighborhood of St. John d'Acre, the coast and a considerable belt of land adjoining it are sandy and barren. Near Acre everything changed. We once more beheld pretty country houses surrounded by pomegranate and orange plantations, and a noble aqueduct intersects the plain. Mount Carmel, alone barren and unfruitful, stands in striking contrast to the beauteous landscape around. Jutting boldly out towards the sea, it forms the site of a handsome and spacious convent. The town of St. John d'Acre and its fortifications were completely destroyed during the last war, in 1840, and appear to sigh in vain for repairs. 
The houses and mosques are full of cannon-balls and shot-holes. Everything stands and lies about as though the enemy had departed but yesterday. Six cannons peer threateningly from the wall. The town and fortifications are both built on a tongue of land washed by the sea. May 27th. During the night we reach Caesarea. With the eloquence of a Demosthenes, our captain endeavored to dissuade us from our project of landing here. He pointed out to us the dangers to which we were exposing ourselves, and the risks we should run from Bedouins and snakes. The former, he averred, were accustomed to conceal themselves in hordes among the ruins, in order to ease travellers of their effects and money, being well aware that such spots were only visited by curious tourists with well-filled purses. They were continually on the watch, like the robber knights of the old German Empire. An enemy no less formidable, said the captain, was to be encountered in the persons of numerous snakes, lurking in the old walls and on the weed-covered ground, which endangered the life of the traveller at every step. We were perfectly aware of these facts, having gleaned them partly from descriptions of voyages, partly from oral traditions, and so they were not powerful enough to arrest our curiosity. The captain himself was really less actuated by the sense of our danger, in advising us to abandon our undertakings, than by the reflection of the time it lost him, but he exerted himself in vain. He was obliged to cast anchor, and at daybreak to send a boat ashore with us. Our arms consisted of parasols and sticks, the latter we carried in order to beat the bushes. We were escorted by the captain, his servant, and a couple of sailors. In the ruins we certainly met with a few suspicious-looking characters in the shape of wandering Bedouins. As it was too late to beat a retreat, we advanced bravely towards them with trusting and friendly looks. The Bedouins did the same, and so there was an end of this dangerous affair. We climbed from one fragment to another, and certainly spent more than two hours among the ruins, without sustaining the slightest injury at the hands of these people. Of the threatened snakes we saw not a single one. Ruins, indeed, we found everywhere in plenty. Whole side-walls, which appeared to have belonged to private houses, but not to splendid palaces or temples, stood erect and almost unscathed. Fragments of pillars lay scattered about in great abundance, but without capitals, pedestals, or friezes. It was with a feeling of awe, hitherto unknown to me, that I trod the ground where my Redeemer had walked. Every spot, every building, became infested with double interest. Perchance, I thought, I may be lingering within the very house where Jesus once sojourned. More than satisfied with my excursion, I returned to our bark. By three o'clock in the afternoon we were close under the walls of Joppa. To enter this harbor, partially choked up as it is with sand, is described as a difficult feat. We were assured that we should see many wrecks of stranded ships and boats. Accordingly I strained my eyes to the utmost, and could discover nothing. We ran safely in, and thus ended a little journey in the course of which I had seen many new and interesting objects, besides gaining some insight into the mode of life among the sailors. Frequently, when it fell calm, our Arabs would recline on the ground in a circle, singing songs of an inconceivably inharmonious and lugubrious character, while they clapped their hands in cadence, and burst at intervals into a barking laugh. I could not find anything very amusing in this entertainment. On the contrary, it had the effect of making me feel very melancholy, as displaying these good people in a very idiotic and degrading light. The costume of the sailors was simple in the extreme. 
A shirt covered them in rather an imperfect manner, and a handkerchief bound round their heads protected them from a coupe de soleil. The captain was distinguished from the rest only by his turban, which looked ridiculous enough, surmounting his half-clad form. Their diet consisted of a single warm meal of pilau or beans, eaten in the evening. During the day they stayed their appetites with bread. Their drink was water. The town of Joppa, extending from the seashore to the summit of a rather considerable and completely isolated hill, has a most peculiar appearance. The lower street is surrounded by a wall, and appears sufficiently broad. The remaining streets run up the face of the hills, and seem at a distance to be resting on the houses below. Viewing the town from our boat, I could have sworn that people were walking about on flat house-tops. As Joppa boasts neither an inn nor a convent which might shelter a traveller, I waited upon the consul of the Austrian Empire, Herr D., who received me very kindly and introduced me to his family, which comprised his lady, three sons, and three daughters. They wore the Turkish costume. The daughters, two of whom were exceedingly beautiful, wore wide trousers, a caftan, and a sash round the waist. On their heads they had little fez caps, and their hair was divided into fifteen or twenty narrow plates, interwoven with little gold coins, and a larger one at the head of each plate. A necklace of gold coins encircled their necks. Their mother was dressed in exactly the same way. When elderly women have little or no hair left, they make up with artificial silk plates for the deficiencies of nature. The custom of wearing coins as ornaments is so prevalent throughout Syria that the very poorest women, girls, and children strive to display as many as possible. Where they cannot sport gold, they content themselves with silver money, and where even this metal is not attainable, little coins of copper and other baser metals. The council and his sons were also clothed in the Turkish garb, but instead of a turban the father wore an old cocked hat, which gave him an indescribably ludicrous appearance. A son and a daughter of this worthy patron of the semi-Turkish, semi-European garb had but one eye, a defect frequently met with in Syria. It is generally supposed to be caused by the dry heat, the fine particles of sand, and the intense glare of the chalky hills. As I reached Joppa early in the afternoon, I proceeded in company of the consul to view the town and its environs. In dirt, bad paving, etc., I found it equal to any of the towns I had yet seen. The lower street, near the sea, alone is broad and bustling, with loaded and unloaded camels passing continually to and fro. The bazaar is composed of some miserable booths, containing common provisions and a few cheap wares. The neighborhood of Joppa is exceedingly fertile. Numerous large gardens, with trees laden with all kinds of tropical fruits, and guarded by impenetrable hedges of the Indian fig-tree, form a half-circle round the lower portion of the town. The Indian fig-tree, which I here saw for the first time, has an odd appearance. From its stem, which is very dwarfish, leaves a foot in length, six inches in breadth, and half an inch in thickness shoot forth. This tree seldom sends forth branches, the leaves grow one out of another, and at the extremity the fruit is formed. Its length is about two or three inches. Ten or twenty such figs are frequently found adhering to a single leaf. I could not conceive how it happened that, in these hot countries, without rain to refresh them, the trees all looked so healthy and beautiful. This fact, I found, was owing to the numerous channels cut through the gardens, which are thus artificially irrigated. The heavy dews and cool nights also tend to restore the drooping vegetation. 
One great ornament of our garden was, however, totally wanting, a lawn with wild flowers. Trees and vegetables here grow out of the sand or stony earth, a circumstance hardly noticed at a distance, but which produces a disagreeable effect on a near view. Flowers I found none. The whole region round Joppa is so covered with sand that one sinks ankle-deep at every step. End of section 11